Thank you for listening to this gospel resource from Cornerstone Baptist Church in Wiley, Texas. Feel free to use or share this resource, but we ask that you not alter the content in any way. For more information about Cornerstone Baptist Church, please visit us at cornerstonewiley.org. Okay, good morning. Yeah, I come up here, uh, I guess, got to tell you, last week I was driving here for Sunday school and a heavy weight was on my shoulders like I couldn't, I, like, it was overwhelming because anytime you're dealing with the Word of God, it's overwhelming. And I knew that this week I had to teach and I felt that weight. And um, we should all feel that when we're dealing with God's Word. There's a uh, um, reverent fear we should have um, when we're dealing with his word. So, sorry, let me put, now the light's red. Is it supposed to be red? Just momentarily touch it. Okay. So, anyway, can you guys hear me pretty good now? Yep. All right. So we're going to open up with, um, Reading Jude 1 through 4. And today I'm going to give you an introduction to Jude. We're not going to get into the passage really till next week, but I do want to read the first um, four verses here. And we're going to be doing a nine-week series on the book of Jude. So we start with Jude. Uh, i got to stop. Take a pen and mark out servant, because that is not what that word means. It's doulos. So I'm going to read it the way it's supposed to be. Jude, a bondslave of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are the called, beloved in God the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ. May the mercy and peace and love be multiplied to you, Beloved, while I was making every effort to write you about our common salvation, I felt the necessity to write to you appealing that you contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all handed down to the saints. For certain persons have crept in unnoticed those who were long beforehand marked out for this condemnation ungodly persons who turn the grace of our God into licentiousness and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. And as Justin says, this is God's Word. So let me just uh, pray for us. Lord, I thank you for the opportunity to bring your Word um, this morning. And Lord, um, as any teacher, a desire Um, that teaches your word, the desire is to see people changed. Um, Thank you for your mercies and grace to us, and thank you for this book that we can learn from, especially in this day and age. We give you praise for everything in Christ's name. Amen. Well, we live in a time which the word of God has been attacked more openly in America than ever before. We expect attacks from outside the church, but the reality is that within the church, the attacks are much worse. Our pulpits are filled with people 
that have abandoned the word of God, or they just use enough scripture to deceive millions. All you have to do is go on the internet and scroll through the most popular supposed preachers and you will find more apostate teachers than you can count. Tim Chalice identifies seven types of false teachers. The first one is the heretic. The heretic is the person who teaches what blatantly contradicts an essential teaching of the Christian faith. He is a gregarious figure, a natural leader, teaching just enough truth to mask his deadly error. The second one is the charlatan. The charlatan is the person who uses Christianity as a means of personal enrichment. The charlatan is only interested in the Christian faith to the extent that it can fill his wallet. He uses his leadership position to benefit from others' wealth. And then third, we have the prophet. The prophet claims to be gifted by God to speak fresh revelation outside of Scripture. New authoritative words of prediction, teaching, rebuke, or encouragement. In reality, though, he is commissioned and empowered by Satan for the purpose of misleading and disrupting Christ's church. And then the fourth one is the abuser. The abuser uses his position of leadership to take advantage of other people. Usually he takes advantage of them to feed his own sexual lust though he may also desire power. And then the fifth one is the divider. The divider uses false doctrine to disrupt or destroy a church. He gleefully divides brother from brother and sister from sister. The sixth one is the tickler. The tickler is a false teacher who cares nothing for what God wants and everything for what man wants. He is the man-pleaser rather than the God-pleaser. And then the last one is the speculator. Finally, the speculator is the one obsessed with novelty, originality, and speculation. Teaching focused on speculation displaces the church in steady doctrine of Scripture. The speculator tosses aside the bulk of the content of the Bible's content and the weight of the Bible's emphasis in order to obsess about matters that are trivial or novel. He grows weary of the old truths and pursues respectability through originality. These type of people are still among us and are thriving in the visible church today and no one's taking a stand against them, or very few, I should say. Again, just Google it, and you'll find all these type of false teachers on the Internet. I was thinking back for the first time, or when, what, when the first time was when I heard somebody preach through Jude. I was at Grace Community Church in Los Angeles for almost 13 years, heard over a 1,000 sermons from mostly given from John MacArthur. And out of all those sermons, I heard some that I heard, some of them struck with, stuck with me more than others. But one of those sermons was not preached by John. A man named Ian Murray came to the, our church and taught in our Sunday school class. That actually had about 500 people in it. Sunday school classes at Grace were huge. <laughs> um, this was in the mid-1990s. He taught on Jude. 
I'd become aware of Ian because I had read several of his books before I met him. I have probably forgot most of what has been in those books, but that sermon stuck with me. It taught me that we have to defend the faith and we have to protect the flock. The book of Jude is, pretty, is a pretty neglected book. Seldom do you hear sermons on this book. The letter can be hard to stomach because it is a dark letter against false teachers and it deals with their final judgment and the final judgment of all who reject Christ. One commentator says its style is broken and rugged, bold and picturesque, energetic, vehement, glowing with fires of passion. Origen said Jude wrote an epistle consisting of few lines indeed, but filled with vigorous words of heavenly grace. So today we will start a series on Jude. I'm sure some of you maybe remember a few years back when Justin did a series on this very book. As Peter in 2 Peter 1.12 says, it is good that we are reminded of the truths of all of Scripture. So it is always good to refresh our minds because it is easy to forget the great truths of his word. This book is timely for our day as it was when Jude penned it and as he ministered in the first century church. False teaching has been with us since the beginning of creation. The first false teacher and still the foremost false teacher is Satan himself. He fed lies to Eve who bowed to his false statements about God. And then we see throughout the Old Testament false prophets that would try to pull people away from their devotion to God. Satan and his followers are deceptive and infiltrate the church disguised as angels of light. Or as in 2 Corinthians 11:13 says, they masquerade as apostles of Christ. Our day is no different. There are false teachers trying to sow discord and chaos in the body of Christ. Many that stand up in pulpits each week as so-called pastors would fit in the category of false teachers. There is an aroma in the visible church that abhors anyone that would call out these false teachers that have infiltrated the modern church. In the age of societal tolerance, it is seen as unloving, judgmental, arrogant, and intolerant to call out false teachers. Yet here we have Jude doing this very thing. He knew he had a duty to God and to the body of Christ to call out false teachers in his day, and he is our example today. As Thomas Schreiner puts it, Jude's message of judgment is especially relevant to people today, for our churches are prone to sentimentality suffer from moral breakdown, and too often fail to pronounce a definitive word of judgment because of an inadequate definition of love. Jude's letter reminds us that errant teaching and dissolute living have dire consequences, end quote. Jude purposed to write to this group of believers about the common salvation that they shared in Christ. But the more urgent matter was to deal with these false teachers who were leading others astray, not only by their words, but also by their deeds. Jude does not hold back on declaring judgment on these false teachers. 
This is very foreign to us today in a world that is full of sentimentality, no absolutes, everyone doing what is right in their own eyes, and a hyper-tolerance of sin that negates God's word. It is expected by the larger visible church that unity trumps biblical doctrine. Unity at all costs is the mantra of today. So, to begin our study of Jude, we will establish some background and context in introducing this short letter. We'll be looking at the author, when it was written, who the recipients were, the opponents were, and the reason he wrote the letter. So let's first look at the author, Jude. There are several men named Judas or Jude in the New Testament. Jude is the English word that is translated from Judas. Judas is the translated Greek word from the Hebrew word named Judah. The, this name was popular around the time of Christ, not only because of the tribe of Judah, but also because of Judas of the Maccabean revolt against the Greek ruler Antiochus Epiphanes in the second century BC. In our passage, Jude is associated with James. There are only two in the New Testament that are associated to a James, and we would deduce that one of these two wrote this letter. The two are the Apostle Judas and Judas, the half-brother of Jesus. In Luke 6.16, we see that the Apostle Judas, also called Thaddeus, was the son of James and not the brother of James. And let me just say, some of the translations have mishandled the Greek, and I think the King James, um, at least one of the King James version, translates it as brother of James, but that's actually an incorrect translation. The New American Standard and the English Standard actually correctly translate as the son of James. The author of Jude would have also addressed himself, as all the apostles do in the New Testament, as an apostle if he were dealing with the if we were dealing with the apostle Jude, Judas. But in fact, the writer of Jude distinguishes himself from the apostles, and in verse 17 of Jude, he says, "But you, beloved, ought to remember the words that were spoken beforehand by the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ." This Jude did not identify himself as an apostle, which would have been the natural and appropriate thing to do here in verse 17. So we can rule out that the apostle Judas wrote this book. Jude identifies himself in verse 1 as the brother of James. James, the half-brother of Jesus, was the head of the Jerusalem church and author of the epistle of James. The Apostle Paul refers to this James in Galatians 1.19 as being the Lord's brother. Jude is the only New Testament writer that identifies himself by a family relationship. This gave weight to this letter before us by Jude identifying with James. It is like a calling card for someone that has a reference. So we see that this Jude is the brother of James which would also mean he was the half-brother of Jesus. He probably shortened his name to Jude to make a distinction between himself and Judas Iscariot. But let's look at Matthew 13.55. You don't need to turn there. I'll just read it. It says, Is this not the carpenter's son, talking about Jesus? Is not his mother called Mary and his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? 
Jude, as well as his brothers, did not believe that Jesus, his half-brother, was the Messiah during Jesus' earthly ministry. John 7, 5 says, For not even his brothers were believing in him. Jude grew up with Jesus and lived the same childhood as Jesus did. As Jesus began his earthly ministry, Jude saw or heard of the miracles of Jesus. He saw great crowds Jesus spoke to. He heard Jesus' words of life, but he rejected him as the Messiah. <clears throat> you see, evidence does not demand a verdict. Eyes that are blinded and hearts that suppress the truth can never be changed by anything horizontal. Only God can change the heart from a stone to a heart of flesh that repents and turns from their sin, trusts by faith in Christ, and lives a life bearing fruit, which is the evidence of true regeneration. But God, being rich in mercy, took two spiritually dead men who were his half-brothers and made them alive to him. Jude and James were saved sometime between the crucifixion and the ascension of Christ. After Jude's salvation, his relationship with Jesus changed from a sibling to his master, Lord, and Savior. Acts 1.14 gives us evidence of this transformation. It says, These all with one mind were continually devoting themselves to prayer along with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. Jude does not refer to himself as the half-brother of Jesus, and in no way does he try to capitalize on being the half-brother of Jesus. Instead, he identifies himself as the bond-slave of Jesus Christ. We do not know much about Jude apart from this letter he penned, but according to 1 Corinthians 9.5, we see that the brothers were both married, and we can also deduce from that passage that Jude possibly and probably had a ministry as an evangelist in the first century church. So that is the writer of this book. And then we want to look at the date and place of the writing. Having established that this letter was penned by Jude, the half-brother of Jesus, it narrows down the time of the writing of this letter. Nothing in this letter gives us insight when it was written or where it was written. There has been speculation that it was written anywhere from 60 AD to the, 16th, or to the 2nd century of the church. Another key is that Jude does not mention the destruction of the temple in 70 AD. It seems like that was too big of an event if it was written after 70 AD for him to leave out of this letter because that was a judgment and it would fit well with his letter if that had already happened. There is, a possible, there is possible evidence that Peter and Jude read each other's letters, but I'm not sure, honestly, which one was first. And there's a lot of debate on that issue. And I, through my studies the last several weeks, I have flipped back and forth. Oh yeah, Jude was written first. Oh wait, wait, maybe two Peter was written first. But it doesn't change anything, but it, they were written around the same time. There are remarkable parallels between 2 Peter and Jude. If you take time to read both books, you will see the comparable language used by both. So if you look as an example at verse 4 in Jude, 
it says, For certain persons have crept in unnoticed, those who were long before him marked out for this condemnation, ungodly persons who turn the grace of our God into licentiousness and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. And then if you flip over to 2 Peter 2, 1, it says this, But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will also be false teachers among you, who will secretly introduce destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing swift judgment on themselves. So there are many parallels between the two books. So clearly they were both dealing with these apostate people at um, different locations. So this would actually, because these books are very similar and um, they parallel so much and the lifespan of each of these men that they were wrote these letters at this, during, while they were both alive probably. So that would actually put our date of this letter before either Peter's death, which was around 65 AD, or very close thereafter. But definitely, I would put it between 60 to 70 AD, and probably closer to that middle area. We can't be sure where this letter was pinned. Um, there's simply not a lot of evidence for that. Some commentators believe it was written in the Alexandria region in Egypt, but the only reason that they point to that is because this letter was um, widely accepted um, among the Egyptian believers. The strongest argument for that position is the quality of Greek that Jude uses. It's clear Jude is a well-educated man, but that, that does not mean that education could not have come from some other region. There is also no evidence that any of Jesus' brothers went that far north. There is a good possibility this letter was written in Palestine. There were plenty of Hellenistic schools where Jude could have been educated, which would explain the quality of Greek that this letter is written in. And Jude, and especially his brother James, were well known in the Palestinian region. So the best guess I would make is that it was written in that area. So we've looked at who the author was. We've looked at the date and place of the writing of this letter. So now let's look at the recipients of this letter. Jude is writing to the true believers. And I don't, I don't know if I have this in my notes or not, but the fact is he never addresses the apostates directly. This letter is for the believers. Most commentaries agree that the recipients of this letter had some Jewish background. However, that is not to say that there were not Gentiles within that body of Christ. Jude refers to two writings that are not considered as part of the canon of Scripture, the Book of Enoch and the Testament of Moses, which we will deal with when we get to those passages. This possibly points to a mixed group of believers who were familiar with both of these extra-biblical writings. We also don't know if this was written to several churches or a specific church. 
For sure this letter would have found its way to the group Jude had in mind when he wrote the letter, but if that was plural or singular, we don't know for sure. One thing that we do know is that this letter is for us today, and we'll see that in our further studies. And then next we want to look at the opponents addressed in the letter. It is very clear that Jude wrote this letter to warn them to take action against the false teachers that had infiltrated the gatherings. Some say that false teachers were those that were embracing Gnosticism. And some of you maybe know what that means, but if not, we're going to take a minute here and look at that. Gnosticism was emerging at the end of the first century church into the second century. The name comes from the Greek word gnosis, meaning knowledge. And I can't cover all of the teachings of the Gnostics, so you don't need to come to me later and tell me, oh, you left this out and this out and this out, because I know I probably will, but I want to cover some highlights of what they believed. Um, they thought that acquiring knowledge through a messenger of light was acquiring salvation. There was a diverse group of different religious movements within the Gnostics, and that's why you have such diverse different teachings, because it was, it, you couldn't nail down, oh, this is exactly what they believe, because certain sects taught different things. <clears throat> but one thing that they held in um, common was that they were dualist. And they held to dualism. They believed that the material world was inherently flawed and evil and that within each person their soul was a divine spark of light. Sounds very familiar with a lot of uh, false teaching groups now. They say the way of salvation was for people to liberate themselves from the material world. They considered that God, the God of the Old Testament to be distinct from the supreme unknowable God in the spiritual realm. They also denied that Christ came as fully man, and they denied the resurrection too. So the salvation for the Gnostic is more about acquiring and using secret knowledge that would eventually release them from the prison of the physical body. Most of them denied that God created everything too, and they had a mythological view of the cosmos. And these myths usually involved divine beings. Gnostics taught that God is transcendent but not imminent. They held that God is so unlike man that he cannot be known by us and cannot be involved in creation. They take some truth and mix it with error. It is true that God is transcendent. He's above his creation, which means he is exalted above all. <coughs> Yet he is also imminent with his creation. He is ever-present and active in his creation, and he is a relational God with us. Ecclesiastes 5.2 says, Do not be hasty in word or impulse in thought to bring up a matter in the presence of God. For God is in heaven, and you are on the earth. Therefore, let your words 
be few. Here we see God is beyond us in some sense. This points to his transcendence. This does not mean that God has hidden himself from his creation and that he is not knowable. His transcendence points to his lordship over all of his creation. His thrones are in the heavens, which refers to his universal lordship over all. Some have misused the doctrine of his transcendence to say that we can never know God and that his word is inadequate to know him. The reality is that God has revealed himself to us and has done that in a personal way. He is imminent to us too. He is knowable. We can grasp and understand who he is. He has revealed himself to all of his creation. Romans 1, 18 through 22 says this, For the wrath of God from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness because that which is known about God is evident within them. For God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, his indivisible, invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. For even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God, or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations, and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools. So it's clear that all of creation is screaming out to his created beings that there is a God, and he is to be worshipped. I always say... Um, you really won't meet an atheist because everybody deep inside, when they're sitting in that dark room where they have to contemplate life, they know there is a God. Our scriptures say that they suppress that truth that they know, and that is exactly what the world does. They suppress it. They know it. And they know enough of it to condemn them to hell unless they repent. But for us that are in Christ, God is a covenant-keeping God. And he's intimate with us, with his people, that he is chosen in a different way than he is with the rest of his creation. 2 Corinthians 6, 16-18 says this, or what agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God, just as God said, and this is a quote from the Old Testament, I will dwell in them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Therefore, come out from their midst and be separate, says the Lord, and do not touch what is unclean, and I will welcome you, and I will be a father to you, and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty.
We have the great joy of having that relationship with the Lord. He is intimate with us. He is a relational God. He is not so far that he's not right with us. And that should give us our hope and strength for sure. But again, we see that God is both transcendent and imminent. Our God is above and in control of all of his creation. He's not a deistic God who just created all things and does not intervene in his creation. He is intimately involved in his creation and especially in those he has chosen. He is sovereign and holy, yet knowable and in relation with his creation. And where has he revealed himself to us is in his word. So not only from creation that all men know that there's a God, but then we know him even deeper and greater because we have his word. I would say that Jude is addressing some form of Gnosticism, but he does not address specifically the heresies attached to Gnosticism. There is much more to this false teaching of Gnosticism, but one way in which these apostates Jude was dealing with were like the Gnostics was that they presumed upon God's grace. So what was the reason for Jude writing this letter? Well, he wanted to write a much different letter than he wrote. And I don't know if he was sitting there with pen in hand and saying, yeah, I want to just rejoice in this common salvation that we have in our Lord, and I want to encourage them in their faith. But the, the issue was that through reports to Jude, he heard about the perversion of the common salvation that these false teachers were doing and how they took the grace of God and turned it into a license to live a licentious lifestyle. Sometimes we have to put on pause something to deal with something more urgent and more weighty. And that's what he does here. These apostates denied the lordship of Christ and presumed upon God's grace. They lived a no-lordship lifestyle. And honestly, I cannot understand how anybody that reads God's word can walk away without understanding the lordship of Christ. And if you struggle with that, let me encourage you to come to me and talk to me and let's work through the scriptures on that. There is a similarity to the Gnostics in this way, because the Gnostics thought the body was evil and used that as a license for their sin too. The lordship of Christ has been attacked since the beginning. This should ring in our ears today because we have the same problem in the visible church. Jude knew it was necessary to fight for the faith, which included the lordship of Christ, and he was fighting for the protection of the true believers in the visible body of Christ. What these false teachers were was antinomian. Antinomianism is the false view that Christians are freed by grace from any obedience to Christ. They reject obedience as legalism. 
We can take two extreme views when it comes to obedience. One of which leads to a licentious lifestyle that supposedly is covered all by grace and another that places emphasis on works to an extreme that destroys grace. I will call, I call this works-based sanctification that destroys grace performance Christianity. Or you could call it checkbox Christianity. If I check off the box, I'm fine. And I get my points with God. It's like trying to get Amazon points using your credit card, right? You think you're just piling up points. The motivator of performance Christianity is to earn those points with God. So both extremes are wrong and dangerous. As we look at the modern visible church, we would put most in the category of antinomianism. There is a softening of the role of God's law an acceptance of sinful behavior that God abhors, and a presumption upon God's grace. But I also must add this as a warning to us in reform circles, and that is that we can err by putting more weight on our works as contributing something to our salvation. As I said, both of those extreme positions are biblically wrong. And that is why this letter from Jude is especially for us today. Just as these battles have been fought in the past, we are still in the battle today. We are living in a time that if you take a stand against sin, you are called unloving, arrogant, prideful, and hateful. We have seen this card played over and over as we take stands against sexual sin and any other sinful behavior. Sexual sin just happens to be probably the most prominent we see, but it's any other behavior, too. We live in a time when God's lordship in a professing believer's life seems to be optional. It's not optional. We do not make Christ Lord. I can't tell you how many people have come to me and said, oh, yeah, I got saved in 1997, Oh, really? Okay, so how did your life go after you got saved in 1997? Well, I just continued to live my sinful lifestyle, but then I made him Lord five years later. Then you have to like reconstruct and see where that person really got saved because they probably got saved five years later because that was when they finally saw their sin and forsook their sin. So we don't make him Lord. He is Lord. If someone is a true follower of Christ, there will be fruit of obedience that will validate that profession. Fruit that these false apostates did not exhibit. That fruit does not save us, but it does identify us as a changed person by Christ and that we are his. So I want to make that very clear because I don't want anybody to walk out of here thinking that your works are contributing to your salvation. Christ accomplished that from start to finish. And that does change the motivation of how you live out your Christian life.
is how you view that subject. If someone is a true follower, they're going to have that fruit that validates that. 1 John 2, 3 through 6 says this, By this we know that we have come to know him. If we keep his commandments, the one who says, I have come to know him and does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, in him the love of God has truly been perfected. By this we know that we are in him. The one who says he abides in him ought himself to walk in the same manner as he walked. And again, if you struggle with understanding that, come to me, because I want you to understand this. It's very important that we understand this. Because too many of us have ignored people that do not exhibit any fruit in their life, and we get on the wrong, we get on the wrong side of judgment and not understanding that correctly biblically, and we're like, well, we're not the judge. That's not true, people. You're not the judge on your preferences. We have a lot of preferences. But when we judge, where does that where do we get the source of that judgment? We get it right here in God's word. And when you see somebody living a sinful lifestyle, I'm not talking about the person. Look, let's just be blunt. Most men struggle with pornography, but the question is, is there a struggle going on? If there's not a struggle going on, you have to question where you're at with the Lord. Because we fight against our sin. We do not rest and dwell in our sin. There's a huge difference. Think about David. He said, when I didn't repent, my soul was like wrecked. My body physically was falling apart because I didn't repent. That's God's discipline of him. But he felt the weight of his sin. If you don't feel the weight of your sin, you need to examine yourself to see where you are with Christ. <clears throat> we can't take credit for our obedience. It's a work of God in us that causes us to be obedient. He has made us new creations with new desires, likes, taste, and will. The will to do his bidding as our Lord. That's why it's important that you understand what bond slave means. And we're going to cover that next week. We have a responsibility to obey him, yet at the same time, as we're obeying him, we realize that our obedience is what he is causing us to do. I'm going to cover this later, but your sanctification is monergistic too. And let me explain that in a few weeks before you go off on a tangent there. We still have a responsibility, but the reality is he prepared those works that you will walk in before you ever was saved. Ephesians 2.10 says that, For we are his workmanship, talking about believers, we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus. For what? For good works. Now listen to this. 
which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. That's not optional. He's going to do what he has set out to do in your life, and you are going to walk in obedience to him. So stop taking credit for your obedience. Stop taking credit for your sanctification. Lay that at Jesus' feet, knowing that it's him who's causing you to be obedient. He has saved you and made you new. He gave you a new mind. He gave you new thoughts, new will, new desires. You're, you hate sin now before you love sin. That's what God does. It's all his work. So give him the praise and glory for it. I'll tell you what you can take credit for. Your sin. Everything else is God's grace. So let me summarize all that we've discussed. We've learned or been reminded that J Judas was the brother of James, the half-brother of Jesus, and Judas, Jesus' bond slave. And like I said, we'll discuss that more next week. We have learned that certain people had crept into the church and influenced others to presume upon God's grace. Due to this, it was expedient to Jude to address this infiltration of false teachers. Jude took his responsibility seriously to warn them about these false teachers, which really shows his shepherd's heart. Anybody that gets into the pulpit and teaches better have a shepherd's heart. I'm not up here to try to show you how smart I am because I'm not. I never read a book, literally never read a book until I got saved and ended up in seminary, even though I played a year of ball in college and then went off to play at a different level. But the reality was I played basketball. That's what I cared about. But when God <laughs> saved me, like it changed my life, and I had a desire to read and study to understand his word better. I'm not up here to try to make you think that I am a good teacher, because I know I'm not. The power is in God's word, and I don't want to be in the way of that message. And maybe some of you in here do not know Christ today. Maybe you have been deceived in your own heart, thinking that you are saved and you're not. Today is the day of salvation. Today is the day to repent of your sins. There is a God. You know it deep inside. You've rebelled against him. But he is a God that is a God of grace and mercy too. He has to be just and holy or he's not God. But he also demonstrates his grace and mercy on repentant sinners. And today... I call you to repent of your sin and put your trust in Christ. We don't want to see anybody in hell. We want to see people turn to him. So as we close today, let us think about our lives. Where are we at with the Lord? Do we see him as distant and not intimate with us in our day-to-day -day life? We can fall into that as believers because we're not pursuing him like we should. Do we identify ourselves as ones that are bought by Christ, owned by Christ, and are living for him and not for ourselves? 
Those are our questions that we have to really examine and ask ourselves. Hopefully during the next few weeks, we'll be learning that we each have a responsibility also to stand against false teachers. Way too many of us are quiet. Way too many of us do not give an answer for the hope that's within us. But we first must be men and women of the word of God. You can't defend that which you do not know. You have to know the word of God. The word of God is where we know who God is, who we are, and what he demands of us if we are his. We also need to study God's word so we can identify false teachers. We can't identify that which we don't, do not know is true if we don't know what's true. Boy, that didn't sound right, but you get what I'm saying. Let me just leave you with this passage, and hopefully it'll be an encouragement to you today to start studying God's word with a more serious heart. It says in 2 Timothy 2.15, Be diligent to present yourself approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed handling, accurately handling the word of truth. That's what we're called to be. Workmen for the Lord, handling accurately the word of truth. Our Lord God, we thank you for this time. I thank you for the opportunity to study the book of Jude. And we pray during these next several weeks that you will use it to change us, to make us more like you, to make us stronger, to not only stand, but to defend the faith, the objective faith that you have delivered to us in your word. We do pray now for Justin as he um, prepares to teach us. Let us have open hearts to learn. And we thank you for this body of Christ that we can love each other greatly. In your name we pray. Amen.